0: Hi everyone, my name is Essen and you're listening to the Brown History Podcast. In India, Christians account for about 2-3% of the population. However, in the state of Kerala, Christians make up a remarkable 18-20% to of the total population. Within this Christian community, Syrian Christians play a significant role representing almost half of Kerala's Christian population. Now, although the Syrian Christians of Kerala are a minority, they are also a caste, race, and class privileged minority that have historically benefited from their privileged position within society. And if the Syrian Christians are the dominant community, then there must be a community underneath them, or communities underneath them, and they represent the minority within the minority. Our guest today is Sonia Thomas, author of the book Privileged Minorities, and together we discuss the Christians of Kerala, specifically the Syrian Christians, and navigate the intricacies of caste, gender, class, race, religion, and language. I should have said this sooner, if I pronounced anything wrong in this episode, or in any other episode, or any future episode, I am so sorry. Before we get started, if you're enjoying the podcast and you're enjoying Brown History and you're enjoying everything and you want to help out and you want to support, do consider being a patron. It really helps a lot. Um, You can also check out our shop, shopbrownhistory.com. You can check out our newsletter. Um, There's so much and so many ways to help out. So, So thank you for listening and let's get this started. Thanks so much for doing this. Absolutely. Um I it was a great book but I don't think I'm smart enough for it yet because it's a it's very deep and it's very layered I think before we can start off talking about the complicated themes of the book. Maybe for people who don't know about the history of Christianity in the subcontinent in India, uh, we can talk about that and kind of establish the foundation. Because whenever I think of Christianity in developing countries, I always think of colonialism and, and missionaries that come to the country. But I was very surprised to learn that uh, supposedly there were there was a community of Christians long before any major European power had arrived and from my understanding, one of Jesus' apostles traveled all the way to South India and converted a bunch of people into Christianity.
1: Yes, yes. And I, I'd like to first say that that's what this community believes, right? So they, they call themselves the St. Thomas Christians, or the um, in the scholarly literature, they're known as Syrian Christians, because their mass and their practices are in the Syriac language, which is a kind of... Um, Uh, a language that is very close to the Aramaic language, which is a language that Jesus spoke. Um, And there are many different kind of Christian churches in the Middle East that come from the Syriac tradition. Um, And yes, uh, when I say they believe this, but it's also supported by the Catholic church who Mm -hmm. recognizes um, that St. Thomas, the apostle of Jesus came to India and was martyred outside of Chennai. And yes, this is hundreds of years before Christianity is even um, brought to, to Europe. Um, But what is clear, why there's kind of any kind of um, doubt maybe that the St. Thomas Christians came is one, because European powers don't like to believe that there's any kind of Christianity um, there before they bring it there, which would be the Portuguese coming in Mm -hmm. in, uh, with uh, the arrival of St. Francis Xavier, right? So that idea that there's one true Christianity. There's a lot going on in Europe around the time that St. Francis Xavier comes, something called Protestantism. So they mm-hmm. need to kind of consolidate what Catholicism is, what Christianity is, what true Christianity is. So if you get into the weeds of things, there's a long historical debate about whether the Christians of India, the St. Thomas Christians, are part of what is called a Nestorian heresy. Um, that the that the West Christians would say that the Eastern Christians aren't following Christianity very well. Um, so they try and reform them or convert them. And in the, in, for C- Catholics, they try and Latinize them, which means that bring them into the Latin fold or the Western fold rather than the Eastern fold. And these Christians resist. For centuries, they resist. So that's one story about these Christians with co- um, colonialism. But the other story is that uh, when the colonial missionaries come, they work mostly amongst Dalit Bahujan communities. Um, or I would say they're successful with Dalit Bahujan communities. Lower caste. They, yeah, lower caste. They they also tried to convert the Syrian Christians. They were just kind of unsuccessful with that. But mm. when they're successful with um, British missionaries, so that's Protestant missionaries, German missionaries, and Portuguese missionaries, more successful with converting Dalit Bahujan communities the Syrian Christians or the St. Thomas Christians really do not um, mix with the converts that come later.
0: Just to follow up, you know, that's what they believe that St. Thomas came and, and converted people. Um, when the Portuguese came to the Indian subcontinent, did they not mention that, hey, there's already a Christian community there in their historical records? They have. We they just do. don't know. We just don't know if it goes all the way back to St. Thomas.
1: Yeah, they don't know if it goes, um, well, the Western world would doubt that it goes back all the way to St. Thomas. And there's a little bit of discrepancy amongst um, peoples in India as well, because something like the caste system was not consolidated in the year 52 when St. Thomas supposedly came. And the evidence that St. Thomas, the apostle of Jesus came, is largely um, with uh, oral history. And, um, right. you know, the reason for that is because, in, uh, much of what, what, what happens before the Portuguese came with Christianity was destroyed in a, in an inquisition in Goa. So the Portuguese set up shop in Goa and they have an inquisition there. A lot of things are burned, <laughs> books yeah. are burned. There are things called palm leaf manuscripts, which people look into, um, That is still being cataloged and documented, Um, and there is evidence and then there's other evidences of things like the St. Thomas cross It's a very particular cross that churches that St. Thomas supposedly founded still have to this day, Um, the the use of the Aramaic or Syriac language, which is still very important for the St. Thomas Christians. Um, the importance of St. Thomas as the patron saint. Almost every St. Thomas Christian church will have a picture of St. Thomas. The traditions that um, tie the St. Thomas Christians to uh, Christianity in the Middle East. um, Mm -hmm. Many in the the community will point to those. Um, But what is very clear is that by the year 345, so this is still very early in Christian history, a group of Christians come from the Middle East called the Canaan Christians under the leadership of a man named Thomas Cana, who brings 72 families with him to, to Kerala, um, and they kind of strengthen the existing St. Thomas community, um, Their the numbers, right? And then it, it also leads to hundreds of years of of kind of um, ties between the Christians in India and the Christians in the Middle East. And this is well-documented, the fact that um, the arrival of these families. And then by the ninth century, you have in Kerala something called the Syrian Christian Copper Plates, which uh, local kings um, hammer out these edicts on on these copper plates, they still exist. And this says like a, a particular Christian family um, living in this particular area, have all of these ri- um, rights, these mm-hmm. kind of, they're gifted um, different things. And what they're gifted are are very much uh, the types of things that dominant caste Hindus have, like the right to c- carry a particular type of umbrella, the right to use a palanquin, and the right to buy and sell slaves. So you can kind of see that the Syrian Christians at at that time, this is by the ninth century, are there, are in existence, and they have these caste privileges.
0: Okay, so when I read your book, and it's basically a book about caste, is yeah, it 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 wasn't my
1: intention.
0: (laughs) It it seems, it seems like, it seems like if you're confused, if you're reading, if you're trying to learn about caste through Hinduism, it can be very uh, blurry, or it would be very hard to see the privilege and and the nuances but if you're if you study caste through christianity Syrian christianity it's a bit more clear how caste can kind of be prevalent in the community and what are the caste structures and i mean this is what i think but i could correct me if i'm wrong
1: i i i think i have a sentence in the book where i say we we could say that caste is more articulated in christianity I think we go to Hinduism because we, we when we're thinking about caste, because it seems to be the source and we want to go to the earliest text. But if we mm-hmm. go to the earliest history of Christianity, we see caste there. And it wasn't my intention to write a book about caste. I actually came at my dissertation research to look at issues of clothing, um, but it, yeah. it which becomes one chapter of, of the book. Um, but when I started to look at clothing, it is caste is there. Right. You know, and then when I started to look at issues of race in Aryan racial superiority of of these particular dominant caste Christians, caste is there. When I look at protests, caste is there. Um, and so, in the course of writing the book, I started to realize this is a book about caste. Yes,
0: right. And before we, I think before we start talking about caste, can we uh, discuss the root of caste in Christianity? And before Kerala became a state. What was the community, the community of Syrian Christians like when it came to caste, privilege, and and I guess their clothing too?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and I'd like to also say that I'm not exactly a historian; I'm somewhere between an Me anthropologist neither. and a historian, right? So, I most of the book is looking at post-colonial India, so after Indian independence. Um, I do. But I do talk about the history of, of of Christians and what they look like because um, right around the time of independence, you also see this change in clothing practices. Um, and then this happens all throughout India where the Saudi becomes really the kind of this nationalistic garment um, right. and kind of differentiated against, you know, whatever is happening in Pakistan with garmentation. So, um, and it's tied to issues of cinema, you know, where you see, women wearing a particular type of clothing. With Assyrian Christians, um, they had a particular type of clothing that was very uh, similar to dominant caste Hindus. And the clothing practices of Dalit Bahujan Christians and Hindus uh, was very, very different. In fact, uh, part of the caste activism that happens in the early 20th century in Kerala is tied to clothing, where um, Dalit Bahujan Christians fought for the right to cover the upper half of their body. Right. Um, and the Syrian Christians already had the uh, the right, the ability to cover their ha- upper half of their body because they were considered dominant caste by the early 20th century. That was pretty solidified in in society. So that's what I set out to study actually is this change in clothing practice, not just this um, the breast cloth movement in Kerala, but what happens right after the breast cloth movement, which is, the Syrian Christians, which fought like Dominic Castaneda to make sure that that Dalapahujan women could not cover, suddenly just say this Christian clothing that we had that allowed us to cover, it's called the chatatuni, we don't need it anymore. We're all going to move to this secular sari. So I look at clothing as kind of evidence of not just what women were doing, but what dominant caste women were doing. And also, I tie it to issues of Aryan racial privilege because, um, quite literally, the cloth that is used by dominant caste peoples in, in South India at that time in the early 20th century w- was white and cream and with gold border, right? right. And this is considered the Kerala sari sa- to this day, um, usually used around the time of the festival of Ornam, which is Kerala's main holiday. Um, and this still is considered traditional Kerala garments. Um, but Dalit Bahujan Christians and Dalit Bahujan Hindus were not allowed to wear that type of clothing. So I tie it into the, this idea, if, if Brahmins, um, this kind of mythical idea that Brahmins migrated from North India to South India, and then push Dravidian peoples as racialized differently into the lower rungs of the caste system Um, So then, an Aryan racial privilege is also a caste privilege, and how that is tied to material practices such as dress.
0: The root of caste in Christianity comes from the fact that the people that were converted first into Christianity were from a upper caste Brahmin uh, category, and then they kind of wanted to keep that privilege spill over into Christianity, and they basically preserve that level of class by making sure their association with the upper Brahmins is still consistent by, you know, by doing traditions and, and the way they dress and clothing and, and labor, uh, avoiding, I guess, labor and, and keeping fair skin and things like that. And that kind of spills over to generation to generation. And um, am I, yeah, am I oversimplifying it? But is that the, is that it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's hard to talk about how casteism works because it's so imbricated into yes, it's hard into the society, right? Class is one part of it. Labor is one part of it. So when the Syrian Christians are gifted land, like I, I discuss this also in the book, they're considered to be purifiers. You know, so that if if um, something is is polluted, quote unquote polluted by a dalla Bahujan body, mm-hmm. then a Christian can purify it. And so they become this kind of intermediate caste status. They say they were converted Brahmins, but again, Brahmins weren't exactly the caste system in the year 52. But by the 8th century, they're recognized as dominant caste and they're recognized as having this purifying um. Power, I guess, and so in a lot of cases, uh, people will say that their family history starts with coming to a particular area because a Brahmin priest asked their Syrian Christian family to come there. Um, I would urge us to look at the work of Nitin Donald, who's who's looked at Syrian Christian family histories. It's a phenomenon that many Syrian Christian Saint Thomas Christian families have huge books written about their family histories, and they often start with "We were gifted land." and became landowners because a Brahmin um, family needed us to purify things in their temple in this particular village. So it's it's very um, clearly, you know, this part of this oral narrative of who the community is. But once you have that, once you become landowners, and once you have a system that enslaved Dalit Bahujan bodies, <laughs> Then Syrian Christians as landowners, especially in the early 20th century and into the mid-20th century, are able to capitalize with accrued generational wealth on land ownership and specifically rubber cultivation, which I use this statistic a lot. Um, India is the fourth largest exporter of natural rubber in the world, and 90% of it comes from Kerala. And the Syrian Christians have a virtual monopoly over this industry. In fact, I was just writing about a particular priest who said, um, who promised the BJP party mm. in the, central, gov- in the right. central government, a minister coming from the, f- to the BJP party, if the BJP could help with the rubber industry, right? That tie, that a priest is saying that politically, um, to and how yeah. it affects the Syrian Christian community um, is very, very clear. So, I talked a little bit about land. I talked a little bit about class. And then right now, I just talked a little bit about about politics, about how the Syrian Christians can be this minority Christian community and still um, support Hindu right politics very clearly. Um, And you see these alliances to you also see it in the education industry. um, You see it in um, banking, uh, where the Syrian Christians will make ties to the interest that um, help political interests that also would um, entrench the class and caste status of dominant caste Hindus almost at the expense of religion right y- you would assume that Christians would work with Christians
0: so that right. dominant
1: caste Christians would work with with B- Dalit Bohujan Christians um, but we don't see that like right now there's been uh, protesting in the city of Kochi about a shipyard being built and it's Latin Christians. So Latin Catholics, which are Bahujan um, and, and classified as OBC in the state of Kerala, that are doing that protesting. Meanwhile, the dominant caste Christians are, you know, fighting about whether or not a priest should face the congregation or have his back to the congregation. Their concerns are not the concerns of a uh, Bahujan Christians.
0: This concept of minority is kind of complicated because... When I think of minority, when I think of the concept of minority, I think of a of a community that's weak or doesn't have a strong voice. But you, you're it's kind of your book actually. So the Syrian Christians are a minority, but they're a they're a dominant minority and they're a powerful minority. And you talk about how sometimes when there's a cause, the the ones who are oppressed within the minority community come and help the majority. I, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Yeah. Um, what you basically say is that it's it's a minority is also the, the minority concept, a, a community that's a minority. Uh, when you call them a minority, it, it uh, covers up the oppression that's within the minority community that happens between two or three communities. And that's very dangerous. So in this case, the Syrian Christians are um, Christianity in, in India overall is a minority but if we we don't get to go deep down into it uh, and if we did we would see that there's a there's a Syrian Christian community that's oppressive to the minority the the Latin Christians and the Latin Christians there were times in history where the Latin Christians come out and join forces with the with the Syrian Christians to protest some kind of law but when it comes the other way around they're kind of they don't really help them out right
1: yeah i would, I would say that's <laughs> accurate like um there's sometimes where a minority community can be very united but then there when you have such caste that is so imbricated into the social fabric um that affects you know things like the jobs that one have or your experience in higher education or school then and you see then you see divisions in that minority group um and we can see this in you know uh caste in Islam, caste in Sikhism with, with which is I think a lot more people are now starting to to study um because I I don't i I argue this in the book and it's a complicated concept, but bear with
0: mm-hmm. me no, I'm um, all ears.
1: when we have uh so many people in academia that are dominant caste in Hindu mm-hmm. when we think of religion, we tend to think that the other of the Hindu religion is going to be Muslims. Yeah. And so we talk about religion as if there's no caste then. We talk about a religious minority as if there's no caste because we're talking about religion. And when we talk about caste, we tend to talk about caste within Hinduism. So right. we separate, I, and I argue this in the book a lot, like we separate, let's say, an intercaste marriage from an inter-religious marriage. And we assume that an intercaste marriage is only within like a Hindu Brahmin marrying a Hindu Dalit. And we assume that an interreligious marriage is a Hindu marrying a Muslim, but you can have a Syrian Christian marrying a Hindu, and that could be within the caste. Right. You can have a Syrian Christian marrying a Dalit Christian, and it's within the religion, but it's an intercaste marriage. Right? Like so it it's it's much more complex than just to understand that. The other of Hinduism is Islam. The other of caste, uh, of dominant caste peoples is Dalit. And then just assume Hinduism. We have to, I argue, like have a more dynamic understanding of how religion actually functions and how caste actually functions. And when we can understand how they're produced um, through like political alliances, for one, or um, minority rights that then, as you really eloquently kind of summarized. I, uh, I tried. But, but certain, certain minority rights over the most vulnerable minorities, that's where I think that we can see that kind of dynamic thing that happens with religion and caste at play. And we can see this in the U.S. too. I see um, discussions of caste amongst dominant caste peoples who say that, okay, we're going to be targeted as a religious minority now, if you mention caste, you're going to target a religious minority, namely Hindus in the U.S. Oh. Or you're going to target a racial minority because Indian Americans are racial minorities in the U.S.
0: So they need to use that minority card. That's right. Okay.
1: So we have to understand that within minority groups, there's both privilege and subordination. And when it comes to caste, we have historically seen amongst Assyrian Syrian Christians... Um, that they will protect their caste status over the over having religious, you know, um, solidarity.
0: But there's also gender, and it's interesting to see how it's such a dominant religion. But if we look deep down, we also see that there's uh, Christian women who kind of get the short end of the stick at various times. But when we, but when it comes to kind of um, displaying Christianity out to outside religions and outside, uh, to the outside community, women are kind of used as, um, as a symbol of power, I guess, or as, um, as a status, as like, a as a force to like, as a thing, I don't know how to say it yeah. as a mascot.
1: Yeah, I think that that's right. They're like a vessel of the community of a community honor. Right. So the the whole idea of, let's say, like this fabricated love jihad rhetoric. Yes. The whole idea of this is that really focuses on female sexuality. And because the caste system is um, descent based, it matters who your parents are. It's carried on through the generations. That means you need to regulate female sexuality. Women need to marry within the community, within the faith and within the caste. And so, to understand the caste system, we must understand gender. We must understand what what women gain from the caste system. In this case, Syrian Christian women, as being dominant caste, gain something by by conforming to particular norms and values. Um, and so, I talk in the book about like uh, making sure that Syrian Christian women um, don't leave the house. <laughs> um, right. Their their chastity needs to be protected at all costs. Conversely, if you look at what happens with Dalit Bahujan women, the idea that, well, Dalit Bahujan women are out in the public sphere. They need to work side-by-side men all the time. Therefore, they don't have the same kind of sexual purity as dominant caste women, right? So it's not all rosy. If if dominant caste women's sexuality are, is seen in need of protection, um, and there's a lot of Um, regulations, a lot of assumptions about what dominant caste women do. It doesn't mean that it's a rosy picture for Dalit women because India is rife with sexual violence and sexual assault against Dalit women, right? So um, in that system, when we think about gender, a lot of uh, feminists use the word Brahmanical patriarchy, the intersections of um, casteism and patriarchy. So I I would I always try and like think about in my research back to issues of love jihad, that that very idea is not just that women need to marry within the faith and within the caste, but the idea that if a dominant caste Syrian Christian woman marries a Muslim man or, or a Bahujan or Dalit Hindu man, then she has been stolen. Mm. So she has no sexual agency for herself you know, she can't make those choices. Um, I wrote an article, it hasn't been published yet, but um, about how Syrian Christian hierarchy, so priests and cardinals and archbishops have used this rhetoric of love jihad. So it's not just the Hindu right that says love jihad. It is the Syrian Christian community that has been pushing this for over a decade. And they often use talk about love jihad at the same time as they also say that Syrian Christian women need to have more children, but what they mean by that is more children within the faith and within mm-hmm. the caste. So if you see like um if side by side comparison, the last one that gained a lot of press coverage was a bishop um who, who said that not only are Muslim peoples doing a love jihad in the state of Kerala and stealing Syrian Christian girls into marriages with Muslim men. They always use girls, too, because, of course, women are infantilized in this uh, rhetoric. But they also said that um, Muslim men are, are starting a narcotics jihad. But nice. a week before, <laughs> I know it's it was uh, people went up into craziness, which they should, because it's Islamophobic as much as it's casteist. Um, but a week before he issued that statement, he had also issued a statement saying that if a Syrian Christian woman has five or more children, then they'll get a job automatically at a Syrian Christian hospital and get all these benefits. So that idea of reproducing in the faith and in the caste, and then you put it together with this kind of Islamophobic and casteist rhetoric, um, it means that we need to understand how gender and sexuality are like the fulcrum to understand how these religious divisions and, and caste atrocities continue to happen.
0: You said that Christian women can gain something out of the caste system. What is it that they can gain from this?
1: Well, <laughs> accrued generational wealth begets all sorts of things.
0: Oh, okay. So, money. I,
1: yeah, money. Pass. Um, y- you can attend private schools with that. You can have English language education, mobility. Um, I mean, you know, like going to the United States, just for example. Christians are 2% of the population of India. That's like a drop in the bucket. They're 18% of the population of the United States, of Indian Americans in the United States. And Indian Americans are the most wealthiest racial minority in the United States. And of that 18% of Indian Christians, the majority of Indian Christians in the U.S. are dominant caste. And so when anybody in the United States sees an Indian Christian church non-South Asians might look at that and say, that's, that's an ethnic minority church, but it is a dominant caste church. So not only do you have all those privileges, you also get to set the terms of what minority culture looks like,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: minorities need to be protected. So there's all sorts of benefits you get from the caste system, cultural, uh, you know, cap- cultural capital, social capital, economic right, capital, right, political capital that you can tap into. Uh, it doesn't mean that you don't experience the patriarchy (laughs) because you still, um, you might be, I I think I speak in the book about these different stories of um, marrying, you know, not being able to leave the house um, and being said, like, if you do, you're not a very good daughter-in-law or marrying outside the community. Oh, now, since you married outside the community, you're no longer welcome in my relative's house. Anymore. Um, that's like so you still experience the patriarchy, but you do get benefits from the caste system.
0: Well, one of the things you question is how do you define race in South Asia? And it's very different from how you define race in the United States. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, uh thank you for asking that question because I I I get a lot, I got a lot of pushback when I started writing about this when I was just a graduate student. People would tell me, like, there is no race in India. There's only caste or there's only religion. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you should use the term ethnicity. Um, America has race. We have caste. Um, just like a lot of pushback. Um, and I started to use the words Aryan and Dravidian, mostly because that's how my um, research participants were talking about it. When my Malayalam is not the greatest, I am a heritage speaker, which means I had Malayalam in the household but I had to learn Malayalam for dissertation purposes. So Mm -hmm. um, I mess up my Malayalam a lot, (laughs) uh, especially when I was starting to do research. Um, So I had a question that I wrote out in Malayalam and I would ask, I would read it and ask people. And the question was, um, can you talk about who the Syrian Christians are? Are they Brahmin? Are they, you know, like um, that kind of question, like who are the Syrian Christians was the question. And the answer that I started to get, which really confused me, was a, a lot of people started saying, like, well, we're Aryan, a- Arian Marana. And, you know, the other Christians are Dravidian. Mm-hmm. Like, that's an Aryan. Why would anybody use that that term? Um, and so then I started to say, like, what do you mean by this? And I knew a little bit about the history of how um British peoples who studied the Rig Veda, namely Max Muller, started to theorize that the Aryans were Brahmins and, you know, came from the north and, and pushed down south and put Dravidians in the lower rungs of the caste system. But embedded in that is that Aryans are more fair skinned and Dravidians will be dark. Um, So then I started to hear all sorts of stories when I would press people about the Dravidian-ness. I'm like, what makes somebody that? And like, oh, well, you know, they're darker, they're dusky. They they can stand working in the sun, which makes them better suited for that type of work than us. Um, You know, you start to get look at things like matrimonials and marrying within the cast and you see people talking about fair skin. So I started to say in my in my writing that this is not just about color. This is about marriage, which brings in issues of Brahmanical patriarchy and caste. This is about labor mm-hmm. and the idea of which bodies are more suited for what. And this is about you know clothing, the idea that we wear white clothing as dominant caste peoples and, and Dalit Bahujan peoples are forced to wear dirty clothing. Who washes your clothes? The washer caste is considered a Dalit caste right? So the polluting of bodies and how that uh, um, plays into issues of casteism. Even I argue in that chapter between Christians, um, the idea like there's a, a kind of myth that uh, the Thomas Cana who came with those 72 families, um, the some of the Syrian Christian, a group of Syrian Christians will say, well, he married a washerwoman who lost her necklace in the stream and he tied the necklace around her and so that's why they're darker than us. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, but it's not, it's not, it's not just color then, right? That idea um, of, say, Th- uh, Thomas Cana marrying a washerwoman is also about caste and it's also about labor, right? right. So I know because I got my PhD in woman studies uh, um, and read a lot of Black feminist thought that Black feminist thought teaches us, us a lot about issues of intersectionality that there's many intersections. There's not just Black and gender and <laughs> um, It's and connected. Class. It's very much connected so that the experiences of Black women um, may mirror the experiences of Black men and they may mirror the experiences of White women, but they may be unique as well. So we need to understand the intersections, not just look and say, hey, here's some a lot of intersections of caste and gender and race, but to understand how racialized discrimination happens at the intersections of caste, color, religion, um, gender, sexuality.
0: I did this episode on uh, North India versus South India. And the guests said that South India has evolved uh, so much from back before uh, independence. So Kerala, you mentioned in your book, it's kind of a, that it's a region that's um, looked at, and studied because they went from being uh not a place you want to live to a place you would like to raise your children. So it's evolved, basically what I'm saying. These issues that we're talking about, caste and and colorism and, and Syrian Christians not wanting to marry outside of the marriage, not wanting their daughters and women marrying outside of the of the faith and the caste. Is that still prevalent today? And is it prevalent outside of India?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a, such a good question. I mean, I argue in the book that um there had been a lot of changes in Kerala since the 19th century into the mid-20th century. You get almost 180-degree change, where Kerala is considered to be one of the most backward states in in um terms of issues of, of caste and casteism to one of the most progressive states. It starts to become the most educated state, it has not literate. Um, It is most people, you know, go have their babies in a hospital. The Mm -hmm. infant mortality rate is low. The maternal mortality rate is really low. The fertility rate, which is how many children on average women have is very low, which is then tied to issues of literacy, because then you, you think that women are using family planning to get an education um, Kerala is one of the most educated states, as I just mentioned, and they have a population ratio where females outnumber males.
0: So it's doing Which, good. It's doing pretty good. Yes.
1: And it has been doing good. Those are consistent since, since Indian independence time. Since 1947, Kerala always ranks very high on these things. So it's a great place, right? Like it's, it's so progressive. Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't have casteism in a place that's so progressive. And then you see it popping up, right? So... The the lesson that I say that we have to see is that not just like when I first started researching, I got I remember being at a conference and somebody told me, you know, if you really want to look at women and, and what's happening to women in India, you need to go to Bihar. Um, Kerala is great. Um, and I think <laughs> this is a really weird argument, like to say, like, OK, all these development indicators are great, but let's not look at any of the problems of Kerala because it's pretty good. <laughs> mm-hmm. But what about the problems? Right. I, I just saw a video of, um you know, uh, dominant caste Christians trying to keep out Dalit peoples from entering into a road. So they put up, they literally put up a fence and there have been, you know, walls, um, casteist walls in Kerala to separate Dalit peoples from Hindu Nair peoples in the village. I mean, this is like literal segregation going on. Um, and back to the issues of caste and endogamy, or marrying within the caste and within the faith, when that is the prevalent mode, then the divisions are capped, right? And, and when you have, in, in the case of the diaspora, your question about like, does this exist in, in different places? Well, caste carries with the diaspora. And I mentioned that statistic that 18% of Indian Americans are, are Christian, and the majority of Christians from India in the United States are from dominant caste communities, then what happens when you live in an area that's saturated with yourself Mm -hmm. is that you tend not to talk about it because you don't really have to, it's not affecting you. Right. right? So, um, Prema Kurian, who's a sociologist who's, who's written about the Syrian Christians as well. She um, has this part in her book uh, called Ethnic Church, she meets mega church, um, where she talks about most Kerala Christians call themselves Kerala Christians, but they have no understanding of caste, you know, in the United States because they don't have those conversations. Because you don't have to. It's not affecting.
0: Right. You.
1: right. And and that's one of the ways in which I see the second generation and third generation um these divisions are still there, but often not talked about, maybe not because um people want to continue the caste system, but quite literally people don't know and I'm an educator so I'm about educating people and I've I've had uh, wonderful pe- conversations talking to churches in the United States talking to young people who are exploring this history for the first time I thank you for doing um, an episode That's, on don't health. worry about it yeah, because the more people are educated, I, I do see a willingness within the community to to talk about it more, more um, um, frequently. Um, that said, you also have a lot of conservative movements, especially in Kerala right now. Um, there was just a report about Syrian Christians very, being very um, almost militant <laughs> in yeah. their in their defense of the caste system and their support of, um, you know, kind of Islamophobic policies of the Hindu right.
0: When you released this book, did you get a lot of hate from the, from your community?
1: Well, that's a good question to ask too. Like, thank you for that one. Um, so I did not grow up in a Syrian Christian community. I grew oh. up in uh, rural Montana. Uh, and so I wonder sometimes if it almost helped me to, I have parents who are, very supportive. They, um, actually, I don't think they knew what I was doing at first. They, I have five siblings and they all went into the sciences and they just, they just hoped I would get a job, I think. Right. But they also told me like, um, don't lie, <laughs> like tell the truth. Oh, this does exist in our community. And, um, you're, if you're, if you're researching and telling the truth, that should be told. And they're very, christian and very devout um and they also said like it is our duty to care for others that's our what our religion teaches us yeah so i didn't know that it would be difficult to do um but when i started doing the research i think um there's a lot of people who are reticent to talk about issues of caste and um you know i I kind of use anthropological methods of like um thinking about what we call studying up because you're studying power so, yes. how do you gain access to those spaces? Priests might not want to talk to you. Um, people might want to not want to talk about their caste privilege. So, we can ask about something else. Like I talk about in Catholicism, there are different rites, R-I-T-E, of Catholicism. The Latin rite is considered Bahujan. The syro Malabar rite is considered Dominant caste. When,
0: when you say rite, what do you mean by rite?
1: So, Catholic like
0: sect, like Dominant, yes. like, <clears throat> like a sect of Christianity, basically.
1: Yeah, a little bit like a sect of Catholicism.
0: Okay.
1: So the Eastern, you can think of like Russian Orthodox.
0: Right, right. Egyptian, Coptic.
1: Egyptian Coptics, yes. Okay. So the Syrian Christians are part of that Eastern because they have that Syriac slash Aramaic traditions. Mm-hmm. But since they're supposedly Brahmin, right also kind of indicates caste. Right. Because the Latin rite is considered Bahujan and brought by the Portuguese. Right. right. So that you can talk to people about rights. Right. Which is which is what I try and talk to people like if you say you're Roman Catholic, would you bury your grandparents in a Latin rite cemetery? No. Would you would you do your catechism in a Latin Catholic church? No. You have to in the Syrian Christian um, traditions, you have to have certification of religious education in your church to marry within the church which means you would have a catechism within your own right and not okay. that one, right
0: it's complicated it it does get
1: complicated yeah it does get complicated. Does, does does
0: the does the you know other uh catholic rights when they from the west when they look at the when they look at the do they say anything about the caste system or are they aware of that this is going on or it's nothing really of their concern
1: i don't think they understand it okay Um, I'm doing a research project right now about Catholic priests from India in the United States. And I've been trying to talk to people who are gathering data about international priests in the United States on missions to talk about right and caste. Because my ethnographic research has revealed that the vast majority of priests that are coming are coming from Kerala and coming from the dominant caste rights. Um, Here's another factoid. The vast majority of Catholics in India are but the vast majority of bishops are from dominant caste rights.
0: Um, Power.
1: Power. Yeah. So a lot of people, um, they're just, especially non South Asians and non Indian Catholics are not aware of it. Um, But what I have found are little factoids. Like uh, there was uh, a report released about Asian American Pacific Islander Catholics in the United States. And they found that Indian Latin Catholics chose not to go to Syrian right churches. They chose to be religious minorities in white churches. I mean, wow. racial minorities in white churches. Rather that reveals than, a lot. It reveals a lot. It suggests that they might um Latin Catholics, Indian Latin Catholics might not be accepted in a Syrian right Catholic church. Right. Um, and another factoid that I found, um, this is again from Prima Kodian's research. Um, she did not find any Latin Catholic or Dalit Christian advocacy group within Indian Christians, but she found that Latin Catholics and, um, Bahujan Christians, um, join and beg organizations in the diaspora. Again, very telling yeah. because there are many Syrian Christian groups in the U S. Um, so that's, yeah. I, I, there's a
0: problem. There's a big problem.
1: There's a problem. Yeah. And to go back to your thing of, do I get, um, Kind of pushback from the community. Um, I would say I have a little bit, but um, knowing what Dalit Bahujan scholars get, I don't get rape or death threats. All right. What I do get is people who try and argue with me, and um, they argue with me by telling me the one anecdote that re- supposedly refutes everything. Like, I know a Syrian Christian who married a Dalit Christian, and they're fine. I'm like that's true. Or I know Dalit peoples who converted to Syrian Christianity, so that happens, and that is true. There are Dalit peoples who converted to Syrian Christianity. There, it's not. They're not the majority,
0: right? But it
1: is. Um, and there are people who marry across uh, caste lines and face no discrimination. That can be true too, um, but that doesn't mean that the system, the systemic. Discrimination, or that accrued generational wealth has suddenly gone away by your one case that is against what the majority of cases. Right? Are.
0: It's like it's like saying it's like someone saying, "I'm not racist. I have black friends." That, like that <laughs> kind of like I that. Use,
1: I use that same analogy to explain this. Like, yeah, we're so smart as like Indians in the diaspora to understand how silly it would be to say, "I'm not racist. I have a black friend," but we don't do the same when it comes to caste. I'm not casteist. I know somebody who's Dalit or I know somebody who married a Dalit. You know, that's, we do say that with caste. Um, and that's usually the type of pushback that I've got, that people are, try and do some kind of argumentation with me. And I, I attribute that to the fact that I come from a dominant caste community myself. Right. Um, and I can only imagine that if I was a Dalit Bofujan scholar, that I would not receive that same type of reception.
0: Um. We were talking about your book, but there was another book that came a long time ago called *The God of Small Things*. Uh, I was too young to. Well, I read the book when I was really young, but I couldn't finish it because I was just too young to understand what was going on. Uh, now with your book, I can go back and and read it. Um, that book talks about intercaste marriage. Yes. When that book came out, what was what was the what was the response to it? It must have been a big deal, and it got a lot of fame. It won awards.
1: It did. It won the Booker Prize and um, is written by Arundhati Roy um, and uh, who went on to be an activist. Right. Um, And Arundhati Roy, um, you know, in that book, the main character who is a Dalit um, Christian is named Valata, which means white. And she says he's named Valata because he's so black. And and the. the woman, the main character, who's a woman in the book is a Syrian Christian, and she's described as being brown skinned, you know, so again, these color slash religion and Volata does work on her plantation owning family's land, right? Like, so a lot of what I'm talking about here with land, color, caste, religion, and sexuality is playing out a lot in this book. I would say too, she wrote her book before I wrote mine, (laughs) but (laughs) her book is a book of fiction too. Um, but, um, yes, I think, um, it introduced a lot of peoples to how Kerala works with issues of caste and Christianity. Um, and yeah, uh, I think it got people a little bit talking, but in the state of Kerala, the Syrian Christians, um, there were lawsuits against her book saying that it, quote unquote hurts the religious sentiments of the Syrian Christians. Um, yeah, and the thing that they located as hurting the religious sentiments is the relationship between the the two main characters, a Dalek Christian man and a and a Dominic Christian woman. That is the problem. Um, there are many kind of other things that happen in the book that people could object to, like issues of molestation, right. a, a death. No, they had the issue that they had, the lawsuits that were against this book in the state of Kerala were about the interca- intercast marriage right? intercast relationship.
0: My last question, and I think it's a tough one, but what do you think people could, this generation and the people that are listening can do to kind of eradicate this system as best as possible?
1: Yeah, I think um, people who have caste privilege need, need to, at the very least, stop being so fragile and start having conversations in their own community. Um, I see a lot of people just say like, well, we never talked about it in my family. It's not an issue. <laughs> yeah, because you have the luxury not to talk about it. Right. Is that, is that where we are? Um, people who are academics who have caste privilege, at the very least, you can start teaching Dr. B.R. and Becker in in issues of caste in your classes, which hasn't also been done enough. Um, I can only imagine being a Dalit Bahujan student and learning, taking a class on on South Asia and not learning anything about caste at all. Like, um, the hubris of that is just astounding to me. But, you know, at, just at the very least, um, stop being so fragile and start trying to learn and have conversations. Um, for Dalit Bahujan peoples in, in the diaspora, I think that they have and continue to do activism about this. Um, Castism in christianity is well known to to them <laughs> um and uh we people who don't have caste who who are caste privileged need to listen to what they're saying um and center their voices
0: very cool uh do you want to add anything or do you want to say something do you want to talk about the book do you want to sell it
1: yeah it's with university of washington press um
0: privileged I, minorities by Sonja thomas
1: sonia yes sonia thomas sonia
0: oh so the, it's pronounced sonia
1: yeah, interesting story. My parents met in Germany and had a love marriage, even though they were in the same caste and same religion. Um, oh, without... and the German spelling of Sonia.
0: Oh, that's, <laughs> probably, that's cool.
1: I think the tagline, when, when my book was first published, I put a tagline in my email that said, buy my book, it's awesome. And I just did it for fun. But now I say it all the time. So buy my book, it, it's awesome.
0: It, it is an awesome book.
1: <laughs> Thank you
0: in christianity the caste system how do you know someone is of a caste can't you don't your names change don't you know what i mean like
1: yeah like i guess with hinduism exactly.
0: you have a last name and you can kind of track it down but with uh with christianity you have names like thomas and you know uh thomas whatever so yeah how does it show basically
1: yeah i get this question a lot and just about casteism in general how do, how do you know someone's caste um, yeah, and I mean, in I, the
0: in the Christian dominion.
1: Yeah, um, I always answer like, well, you don't necessarily, nobody announces their sexuality either. And yet we still have homophobia, right? right? Like, so with names, names is one of the markers. But I think another marker is location. And I always say that, you know, in Malayalam, one of the first things that you say to people when you meet somebody who's Malayali is not everdonna. It literally means like, where is your home place? Where where are you from? In a way, like, where is your family from? Where is your kin and community from? Mm-hmm. Um, and they might also ask which means "What is your house name?" So Syrian Christians are named um, uh, their house name. It's kind of like a clan, I guess. Um, their Their father's first name, and then your last, na- your first name. So I would be T.T. T. Sonia. Okay. Um, the T is my, thom- the Thomas is my dad's first name. Um, nice. And that is, you'll see a lot in the diaspora that Syrian Christians will take their father's first name as their surname. So Syrian Christians will often have the last name, Philip, Alex, Thomas, Matthew. Um, the reason for that is because in this area of India, there was a lot of, um, there was what's called matrilineal inheritance, which is descent through the female line. But the Brahmins, the Hindu Brahmins, Nambudri Brahmins had descent through the male line. And the Syrian Christians also have descent through the male line. So once you're married in the Syrian Christian faith as a woman, you no longer belong to your family. You belong to your husband's family and you're known by your father's name. You're known by your husband's name. So it's very common to see Thomas, Alex, Philip as last names of Syrian Christians. But it might be very common to see a Dalit Christian name those names as well, right? So uh, and then there's other questions like, where are you from? And if I said, Kotem district, heavy concentration of Syrian Christians, right? Like um, if Central Kerala, um, if I said also my name is Thomas, and then I said my, my house name is Timalangad, people might know that there's a priest from that partic- particular place that has that name. Um, I think what's a better marker for Christians, if people are trying to figure out what caste you are, is where you did your catechism from. What is your family's church? Mm-hmm. If your family's church is the Syrian Christian church, you've already been marked. Where was your grandfather buried? Were they buried on the Syrian Christian land or the Dalit Bahujan Christian land in the cemetery? Cemeteries are segregated.
0: Yeah, that is so weird.
1: But so even in death
0: yeah even that that's just weird yeah just crazy okay. um thank you so much for doing this this was such a pleasure i loved i loved talking about this it was very eye-opening um and yeah and i'll put this out hopefully tomorrow uh i'll try my best uh but yeah if anything else you want to add in
1: no thank you for having me and um if you have any other questions or